Amen. Amen. All glory, honor, power is yours. Amen. And uh, we would long for that to be true on any Sunday morning. I think that was the case last night. Had a great women's tea. And uh, so cool, so cool to see uh, a number of women who, who honestly don't know Jesus, uh, who heard about him last night. And um, so great, great uh, job uh, by you ladies. I know a number of guys were here serving as well. Thank you for that. I uh, love seeing what God is doing and the opportunities that he's uh, putting in front of us. And as Randy so rightly said, <clears throat> we're done singing, but we're not done worshiping. And uh, we'll continue to worship by opening God's word. And I would encourage you to open to Psalm 96. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. would encourage you to uh, bring your Bible to church every Sunday. If you don't have a Bible, that one in the back is our gift uh, to you. Uh, but as we continue in our sermon series... Uh, selections from the Psalms, uh, we come to one of the, really one of the more, uh, the, the higher, more loftier Psalms, uh, what, maybe what we would typically think of when we would think of Psalms, um, just this, this high praise, high worship, high glory uh, of God. And a Psalm 96 finds itself as a part of a series of Psalms, which are called the Enthronement Psalms. And the enthronement psalms are really, um, they're a series of psalms that are describing God as ruler, uh, as king, as the one who reigns uh, supreme, uh, really declaring that, that uh, God is the one that is in charge. And so we've seen the text already, we've worked through it already uh, as we sang there and, and spoke it uh, to one another. Uh, but uh, real quick, Chris, can we put that uh, slide of the psalms up earlier in the series? You guys saw this. Image. I don't know how well you can see that from where you're sitting. Uh, we have copies of that in the back as well. Uh, but this idea of, of the book of Psalms being broken up into five books, five distinct parts. And the particular psalm that we find ourselves in this morning is, is found in book four. And the title of that portion of the book of Psalms is that God is still king. Amen? Amen. God is still king. And part of what God is doing in these enthronement psalms is he's reminding the people of just that. I'm still king. I'm still on the throne. I'm still ruling and reigning. I'm still in charge. I still hold all things in my hands. Maybe some of us need to be reminded of that truth this morning. Maybe some of us have some things going on in our lives where we're like, it doesn't feel like God is on the throne. It doesn't feel like he's in charge. And yet the reality that he is, in fact, in charge the title of the message this morning is Praising God for His Greatness and Reign. No shortage of things to praise God about, but specifically in the text, we're going to see those two items highly emphasized. And so really where we're going to go this morning is we're going to, we, we want to arrive at the place where we would praise God for His greatness and reign. That we're moved to a place of, of praise, that we're moved to a place of worship because we're able to identify both God's greatness but also his reign, his superiority, his rule uh, in our lives. And so this psalm will focus on those two areas. And um, uh, notice this, uh, first of all, actually before we get into that, let me do this. Let me pray uh, for us in our time. And as always, we'll pray for another church here uh, in the area. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, as we come before you, we pray, uh, God, that you would uh, have the fullness of rule and reign in our life. Uh, God, that you would have the freedom to speak into us. So God, we, we would say that right now we, we release your spirit to do as you please, to have your way with us. God, that we would truly believe that you do in fact reign and that we would surrender ourselves before you. 
and say, God, do what you want with us. But God, not only for us, I, I pray for uh, Pastor Carlos Griegos and for Redemption Church. And I pray for Pastor Carlos as they meet this morning that you would speak powerfully through him. And I thank you for my brother uh, who desires to see uh, people who are far from you come to know you and to preach in such a manner uh, that that would be true. And so would you uh, just have your way with redemption? God, would you have your way here at Faith Church? God, would you have your way throughout the entirety of your church? Jesus, we love you. Do what only you can do here in and amongst your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so praising God for his greatness and reign. Uh, just two things. Just two things that, that I want us to see here in Psalm 96. And uh, here's the first one. Is we praise God for his greatness. We praise God for his greatness. And so notice in the first six verses, uh, there's really two things that are going on. Uh, one is in verses one through three, we see that really the psalmist is telling us how we praise God. And then in verses four through six, why we praise God. And so let's just press into each of these here a little bit further. How we praise him. We praise God for his greatness. How we praise him. Look at verse one in the beginning of verse two. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Are you kind of catching a theme here? Right? Bless his name. Okay, how we praise him, we sing to him. That's one of the ways that we worship God is we sing to him. I mean, not once, not twice, but three times. He tells us, sing to the Lord. Now, last week we talked about in Hebrew, uh, to repeat something was to emphasize that particular concept or component or word. And so not once, not twice, but three times, the psalmist is saying, sing to the Lord. I think we can agree he's, he's emphasizing something or he's making a point. This is a big deal. Now, one of the ways we praise God is through singing. Let me say that again. Hear this. One of the ways that you and I will worship the Lord is by singing to him. Now, some of you, Here's what went through your mind as I said that. <sighs> okay, Mike, I know that. I just don't like to sing. I'm not a fan of singing. I don't really like to sing. I don't want to sing. I don't like the songs that we sing. I don't prefer. Let me just stop you right there. And consider, wrestle with these questions for a moment, seriously. If the response to God tells us to sing, if our response to that is, I don't like, I don't prefer, I would rather answer this question for me. Who was worship really about? At that point in time, who was worship really about in that moment? Because it's not about God. Further, if, if worship and, and our willingness to participate in it or not participate in it comes down to my personal preference, my personal desire, what I would rather, God is no longer the object of our worship. We are. More specifically, I am. Or you are. See, we have to come to grips with what worship is really all about. It's not about you and me. It's about the one that we worship. Now, let me, let me just be, I'll be really, really candid with you because for a number of years in my life, well, really for all of my life, I've never really liked singing. Um, 
I'm not musical. I have no rhythm. Uh, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I couldn't carry a tune in a huge bucket, much less just with my voice. I'm just not wired that way. And so for years and years, I mean, even when I began in pastoral ministry, there were times where I'm like, oh, I just kind of hate singing. I don't like it. Now, in fairness, there are other things that show up in the scripture that I'm not particularly fond of either. I don't want to love my enemies. I don't necessarily want to forbear with certain people. I don't always want to live sacrificially. Sometimes, well, okay, all the time, forgiveness is not natural. That's a difficult choice that we make. And in the same way that God tells us, do these things, irrespective of whether or not you like them, the same is true with singing and worship. Now, can we agree that God has a sense of humor? Okay. God has a sense of humor um, because, see, I don't, in the same way that I don't like to sing, I don't like to shop. Okay? And um, so much, so much so do I despise shopping. I was trying to think, like, what would rightly articulate how much I can't stand shopping? If you were coming to me and said, hey, Mike, we're going to go shopping for an hour. Okay, option B, I can hit you over the head with a two by four. Be like a legitimate, you know, questioning going on there. Okay, and as much as I don't like to shop for myself, I absolutely can't stand shopping for anyone else. Okay? And yet, in God's ironic sense of humor, God gave me a wife who loves gifts. Okay? So you, you can kind of figure out where this is going to go, right? Uh, like something's got to give. Now, here's what you got to understand. Uh, when Becky and I first got married, uh, I didn't shop for anyone, myself included. Okay? And I still can't stand shopping, but here's what you have to understand. When it comes to shopping for my wife, I actually enjoy it now. When it comes to shopping for my children, I actually, well, I kind of like it. Not quite to that same point. But see, here's why. It's not that I all of a sudden came to love shopping. I just love my wife. And so my disdain for shopping is far outweighed by the love that I have for my wife. Sometimes obedience is simply a sacrifice. I don't want to. I don't feel like. I wouldn't choose to. But because I love you, I will happily go do this. And so all I can tell you confidently, I don't really like singing about much of anything. I love singing on Sunday morning. I legitimately do. I love singing to God. Not because I love singing, but because I love God. And because I recognize that he tells me, do this. We sing to him. Now for some of you, for some of you, this comes so easily to you. My, my daughter, man, her entire life is just one ongoing song. She sings about everything. I'm going to take the trash out and then I'm going to clean my room, right? I mean, it's just like this ongoing song. And Becky and I will just crack up sometimes like, why are you singing about that? But it's like a song in her heart constantly. I don't sing about anything. Some of you, th this concept of singing to the Lord, man, that's so easy. It's like the most natural thing for you. Some of you, you're like, man, Mike, I don't want to hear that. Well, the one who it's easy for them to sing, they don't necessarily do very well when it comes to loving their enemy, but maybe you're really good at that. 
Or maybe forgiveness comes really natural to you or the ability to speak truth or to be so gracious and compassionate or whatever it may be. That part's easy for you. The singing part is hard for you. There are others where the singing part is easy, but that thing that comes so naturally to you is not for them. At the end of the day, it's an obedience issue. That's what it comes down to. Furthermore, let me just press this a little bit further. Furthermore, no one in this room has a singing issue in the sense of obedience. Some of us, like myself, we've got singing issues in that we can't sing, okay? But no one has a singing issue. What we have is a love issue. That's what we have. And so if you hear me say, hey, here's how we praise God. We sing to him and you're like, I don't want to. I'm out on that. No, thanks. You don't have a singing problem. You have a love problem. And the same way that I will happily shop for my wife. Now, don't get any ideas. I won't happily shop for just about anyone else. It's it's pretty specific, right? Um, that's not entirely true, but, uh, but in the same way that I would happily shop for Becky, it's not because I love shopping, it's because I love her. In the same way that I don't love singing, I don't sing because all of a sudden I suddenly love it, I sing because I love the Lord. And moralism, right? Moralism says I'll do it and God owes me, but a gospel-mindedness, a true gospel servant mindset reveals that not only do I do it because I love God, but that in the process, I'm actually blessed by it. That's the crazy thing, is that we're blessed by it. And so how we praise him, we sing to him. Now, I'll just say one other thing with this, and we'll move on, that uh, I think the church, by and large, we've been really guilty of limiting this concept of praise uh, almost solely or exclusively towards that, and, and really to all of our detriment, And so even this morning, you saw a little bit different, some different ways in which uh, we want to incorporate that. And and I'll tell you that um, while singing is certainly one of the most prominent, maybe the clearest form that we see in the scripture, it is far from the only form. And it's far from the only thing we even see here in Psalm 96. And so look at the end of verse two. Here's the second thing we see, uh, how we praise him. We sing to him. And let me make note, it's not pick one. Okay, well, okay, maybe there's a better option coming. No, no, it's all of these. We do all of these. Secondly, uh, end of verse two, it says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, now it, the, tell, the, the word tell literally means to proclaim or to preach. It's the idea that we speak to ourselves and we speak to others about God's salvation and what he's done in our life. But I want you to notice something at the end of verse two. Notice the frequency with which we do this. Day by day. Now, week by week, not month by month, not occasionally by occasionally. It's daily, it's regularly, it's showing up constantly uh, in our lives that every day I'm reminding myself, every day I'm being reminded by those around me of God's work. Every day I'm coming to grips with God's redemption and his salvation, my need of a savior, how God has moved and worked in my life. And his kindness Last night after the tea, one of the gals that Becky invited, not a believer, um, in fact, a couple of times she's told Becky, well, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. And uh, so she came back to our house. Um, her husband and their kids had come over and we were all hanging out during the tea. And uh, even last night as we were sitting there, both of them actually said to us, well, we're, we're not good enough to go to heaven. And it, it's heartbreaking. Because right? it's like, well, that, that's kind of the point. Um, no one's good enough. That's why the gospel is so glorious in that. But even in that, being reminded of God's salvation for us, you're right that, I, that I'm not good enough, but that's what God has done for us. 
That we need that truth spoken into our lives. We need to open up his word and let it speak into us. We need to walk with Jesus in prayer. We, that's the importance of fellowship and sharing life with one another. So we're telling of his salvation. So we sing to him. We tell of his salvation. Look at verse 3 here. Here's another way that we, of how we praise him. It says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. That word declare is a really interesting word. It literally means to recount or to remember. It's, it's this idea that I'm going to think back, I'm going to reflect on um, how God has moved among the nations, his marvelous works, all that he's done, right, specifically amongst all the people is, is what the psalmist is telling us here. That it's comprehensive that we begin to consider, we begin to ponder all the things that God has done, all the ways that he has moved and worked and demonstrated that he's worthy of glory and honor. Let me just pause right here in this moment and just ask yourself this question, right here, this question between yourself and the Lord. If you could declare something, if you could make known some work of God in your life right now, what would that be? Just begin to think about what would that thing be? What, what would I have to say? What would I have to proclaim of what God has done and how he's worked? See, I think one of the reasons that God encourages us to do this amongst one another is it, is it reminds us that God is actively at work. It reminds us that God is doing things even when I'm not in the place or the position to see it. Sometimes I need to be encouraged by someone else to remember God is, in fact, moving and working. I had an experience like that this week. I was meeting with uh, one of my pastor buddies, a guy named Ryan Bestelmeyer. He just planted another EFCA church uh, about 10 miles south of here, uh, Hope West. Ryan's a great guy. They've been there for six, eight weeks. That guy's been slogging like crazy. And so we sit down. He starts telling me. I'm asking him how it's going. He's like, I'm tired. I'm like, I bet you are. I said, but man, it's great. They've been there for six, eight weeks. They've already had four people come to Saving Faith. And he was telling me about one of the, particularly one of the couples. He goes, man, Mike, one of the people, this couple that we love, they're just good friends of ours. And, and every time we'd begin to talk about spiritual things in groups of people, he's like, they'd have that 10,000 mile stare. Like, we don't care. We're not interested. Want nothing to do with this. And he goes, it was sad, but, you know, it's just, just going to continue to love them. And we, we, we're going to love them no matter what. He goes, man, just a couple weeks ago, I get a text from one of them. And he says, something's changed in our life. Can we sit down and get together? Long story short, they got saved, man. God intervened and showed up. And for me, as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about the friends that we had over last night. <laughs> I'm going, thank you. God, thank you for letting me see that over there to encourage me with what's right in front of me. Now here, here's, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a little bit of a risk and I need y'all's help on this. So we're gonna corporately for a minute, we're gonna declare God's work. So I asked you a minute ago, if you could say something, if you could say anything to declare God's work, um, now's gonna be the time. So here's what I want you to do in one or two lines, just from wherever you're at. I'm not gonna make any of you say anything because there's no pressure. Some of you hate speaking in public, the heart. No, oh my gosh, this is gonna call on me. No, I'm not gonna call on anybody. But this is why I need some of you to volunteer. Otherwise, it's gonna get silent and awkward in here, okay? Um, but just in one or two lines, let's begin to encourage one another. Let's bless our Lord. Let's start talking about, let's declare his works. So here, I'll start. 
I thank God for Ryan and him reminding me that God still saves. Okay, who else? Someone say something. Let's go. Amen. Praise God for that. Okay, who else? Oh. That's a big one, isn't it? That's been a long, hard slog for you. Praise God for that. Who else? Mitch? Amen, man. Amen. Who else? And that great to look forward to. Thank you for that. Who else? Amen. What else? What else is he doing in our lives? Amen. Isn't that awesome? Do you guys, y'all hear that? 74 year old brother got saved about three weeks. Amen. Come on, give me one or two more. I thank God that he saved me from suicide two years ago. Amen. Amen. Come on, give me one more. Amen. Amen. How many of you, how many of you has God healed you from some dramatic sickness? You know, let's put your hand up. Look around the room, loved ones. Look around the room. And I see as you start hearing those things, what begins to well up inside of us is God's moving and he's working. Maybe it doesn't feel like that in my life. Maybe I can't see it. But sometimes we just need to be reminded he's doing it. I mean, 74 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. And, and if you could have asked Yolanda a month ago, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And now it's totally different. So you might find yourself in that place. And God in his perfect timing, right? God's never late. He's also never early, unfortunately. Always right on time. But his goodness, his glory, his honor, how we praise him, we sing to him, we tell of his salvation, we declare his glory. Now, as if it wasn't enough that God told us, now he's going to tell us why we should do it, just in case we missed it. Look at verses four through six, why we praise him. Why we praise him. I think verse four would be sufficient, though he gives us a couple other things. Look at verse four. For great is the Lord... And greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. Okay, why do we praise God? Well, simply put, because he's great. That's why. We praise him because he's great. We worship him because he's great. And the psalmist points to this idea that he's to be feared above all other gods. Right now, the, the psalmist may have some other deities or some other local gods of his day in mind. But simply put, they don't compare. They don't compare to our God. They didn't come close. That's what we see in Psalm 145. His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 89, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Isaiah in Isaiah 44 says, is there a God besides me? No, there is no rock. I know not any. Jeremiah says of God, there's none like you. One of my favorite places in all the scripture is in Job, at the end of the book of Job. And after Job and his three cheesy friends have kind of gone back and forth on some things and then Elihu shows up and he's got some good things to say but he gets out in front of himself a little bit and then God speaks. He's like, okay, let me settle this. He's like, let me just tell you a couple things that I did, Job. I created the foundations of the universe. 
I've walked through the storehouses of the snow. (laughs) I hold the deep in my hands. I control the lightning and the thunder. I've chained the entirety of the cosmos. And he talks about some sea monster that he holds like it's some little minnow amongst a host of other things. And really what Job is saying, or really what God is saying in in Job is, is what ultimately moves to what we see in Psalm 77 where the psalmist says, what God, answer me this, what God is great like our God? No God. No God is great like our God. There's no God that is great like our God. We praise God because of his greatness. We praise him because there's no parallel. There's none stronger. There's none smarter. There's none higher. There's none better. There's none more powerful. There's none more capable. Now I could go on for about the next six hours. Okay? Get the point? He's great. There is none like him. Now can you, can you understand, loved ones, can you try to wrap your mind around the greatness of our God. Part of me wants to say, can, can, can you understand that? And it's like, you can't. Don't even, don't, don't say yes, because you can't. But I want us to try how great he is. We praise him because he's great. Look at verse five. Look at verse five. We praise him because God is creator. He says this, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. See, God is, we've, we praise God because he's creator. And we talked about this last week, this concept of God being creator and, 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 and creating all things. But here in this psalm, it takes a very prominent position. Now, one of the reasons that we would praise God is tied to his creation of us and of all things. And see, it's not that, see, the psalmist even says, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. It's not that there aren't other gods that don't exist. It's not that there aren't other powers or deities. It's that they can't do what God has done. That the clearest distinction between our God and all other gods lies in this concept of creation. That God has always been, and yet they were created. That God, that they have some start, some finite point where God does not, that he's always been, that God is creator. See, our God wasn't contrived by some finite mind, but for eternity past has existed. And one of the reasons that we praise him is that he is the creator of all things, that God spoke all things into existence, including you and I, in which then we come under his rule and his reign because we are part of his created order. We praise God because he's great. Uh, we praise God because he's creator. Here's the third thing. Um, <clears throat> I'm not really sure how to capture everything that's going on in verse six. Uh, quite poetic. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And I just wrote this down. God is simply better. Um, not sure what else to say. He's simply better. These are the things that surround him. I was thinking about this a little bit this week, and when you think about what surrounds a person, you think about um, what moves close to them, you really have a good idea of who that person is. 
And the way Psalm 96 verse 6 reads, it almost seems like splendor and majesty, strength and beauty are are drawn to him, that they're congregating and racing into God's presence going, I want to be there. That's where I want to be. I want to be with him. Greatness begets greatness. So God is simply better. We praise God. Listen, loved ones, we praise God for his greatness. Here's the second thing is that we praise God for his reign. We praise God for his rule, for his reign in our lives. And really in these next couple of verses, we see the emphasis of this particular psalm that God is the king, that he rules alone. That he's still on the throne, he's still in charge, still holds all things in his hands. So notice what it says in verse seven. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. That word ascribe is a very interesting, very nuanced Hebrew word. It, it really can carry a multitude of meanings. In some contexts, it means <clears throat> it functions as this imperative to act. It's a call to action. In some contexts, it's a command that we would give something. And in some contexts, it's an order that we would choose wisely. I think really at some level, all three of those components are going on here in these next few verses in Psalm 96. And so let's just begin to see why we praise God for his reign. Let's see some of the more specific items that we see here. The first thing we do is we give God glory. So what he's telling us, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That we would give to God glory. That word glory simply meaning honor or dignity or worth. This one's a little bit interesting. Ascribe to the Lord strength. I mean, how do we give God strength? How does the all-powerful even begin to receive strength from you and I? Like, what does that look like? Well, God, I want to give you strength. Uh, So here's some of my muscle mass. And uh, now maybe you can bench press 325. God would be like, bro, I hold the whole world in my hands. I don't need any of your muscle mass. I'm good. Thank you. Okay, it's not that we somehow give him something that makes him more powerful. It's that we would rightly credit or that we would attribute to him that we would say, declare, and believe this is true of God, that he is worthy of all honor and dignity and glory, that he is in fact all-powerful. That's how we give God strength that we would accredit, attribute that to him. Scribe to the Lord glory and strength. That we would say of God, you are worthy. God, you're deserving. God, you're honorable. God, you're powerful. God, you're strong. God, you're sufficient. That's how we give him glory. Notice the second thing, verse 8, middle of verse 8, it says, bring an offering and come into his courts. Bring an offering. One of the ways that we praise God for his reign is we bring an offering. He tells us to bring an offering. Now, oftentimes when we think of offering, we uh, think honestly quite limited with it and we think about money. And while that is certainly a part or a way uh, that we bring an offering, it is quite limited in the biblical sense. 
I found it so interesting in my study this week, just even looking back at at the Old Testament offerings, and I was really struck by something quite interesting in in, in this idea of bringing an offering uh, with respect to the Lord. In fact, if you were to flip to, um, I know most of you do a lot of your personal study in the book of Leviticus, so you guys are all fully aware of this, okay? But uh, the first five, six chapters of Leviticus uh, describe the different offerings that we would bring to the Lord. In fact, there are five primary offerings uh, that are there. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about each of these offerings. And each of these offerings, interestingly enough, um, the, the, there's, there's specific instructions that came with them, but they also conveyed meaning. There was a specific meaning that even in New Testament understanding, I think are quite rich and powerful for us. And so when we think about bringing an offering, I want to talk about these five types of offerings in the Old Testament. Before I do that, let me just preface it with this. As we move through this, my primary purpose for doing this is not instructional. There might be something new that you learn. There might be some interesting tidbit that you're like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. That's not really what I'm after. What I'm after here in these next few moments is where we would consider, God, what is the offering that you're asking me to bring? What's the offering that you want me to, to come to the altar with? What's the thing that you're saying, it's time for me to lay this down? What's the thing that I need to put back in front of you? That's what we're after. All right, so here we go. Five uh, types of offerings. Uh, The first was the burnt offering. The burnt offering. The burnt offering was literally where they just burnt the whole thing. It's, I kind of like to jokingly think this is the priest who was still trying to figure everything out. Hey, just leave it on until it's totally smoked and toasted through and through. All right. I mean, you can't mess this one up, right? I mean, you just burn the thing. But what's interesting about the burnt offering is with it came this concept of surrender. It, it, it had this connotation, it had this meaning of surrender that came with it. In fact, complete surrender. It was the notion that every aspect, every component, every facet in my life was consumed by and I understood that it belonged to God. So we think about our life today, right? You start thinking about that. Uh, my finances, my time, my energy, my life, the whole of who I am, my job, all that I have is surrendered to Jesus. That I'll simply embrace whatever it is that he would have for me. Whether he were to give me blessing or difficulty, I'll embrace it because the whole of who I am is surrendered to who Jesus is. Really the fullest sense of our spiritual walk is captured in a burnt offering. Maybe here this morning, for some of you, that's the thing that God is saying. I'm asking you to surrender. I'm asking you to release, to let go, to be done with, to quit running, to surrender to me and to my rule and to my reign. Second offering was a grain offering. This was the only offering that didn't include some type of meat you would take flour or, or wheat or corn or whatever and you would bring that and you would offer that as an offering. Really what it came to represent, what it came to symbolize was this concept of a living sacrifice. Was it, was it was a sacrifice that was put on the altar. Of course, you think of living sacrifice, you can't not think of Romans 12 where Paul exhorts the, 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 the church in Rome 
to offer their lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy and acceptable to him. That this was the spiritual act of worship that they would offer to the Lord and that they would not be conformed to this world, but they would be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And that's part of being a living sacrifice. That my life is continually sacrificed. It's continually laid down. I, I continue to come back to the altar and offer myself to the Lord. Because you know what they say about a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it crawls off the altar. Right? It's the whole problem. You got to keep putting it back on. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do that, don't we? Man, I want to climb off. I want to go do my own thing. I want to be my own person. I want to go do whatever it may be. So maybe for you, that's what God's saying. Are you going to offer yourself to me again? You're going to put yourself back on the altar. You're going to sacrifice yourself once more. Third offering was a peace offering. A peace offering was is interesting thing. This was uh, the um, an offering that was only offered when, when when there could be some kind of participation in the offering itself. And so it really came to um, have this very much a, a, a communal or a, a community or a fellowship uh, type of connotation that was tied to it. It was the idea that my life is right both vertically between myself and the Lord, but also horizontally between myself and those around me. It's the idea of fellowship and communion, that I'm right with the people around me. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's, we think about it today, you think about, I think about discipleship. I think about partnership in ministry. I think about what Hebrews 10 tells us about not forsaking the assembling, right? What happens on a Sunday morning and coming together. Maybe for some of you, this is the offering that God is calling you to. No more lone ranger, no out there on my own. No more, I'll just do my own thing. But I'm gonna be part of the community. Maybe part of the group part of the people that God has placed in my life, a peace offering. These final two, similar in some respects, though one is more broad in general, the other is more specific and pointed. The fourth one is the sin offering. This is more broad in general. It dealt with the general concept of sin, dealt with um, um, unknown sin, unintentional sin, uh, just the bigger, broader concept of sin. But with it came these, these concepts of atonement and confession. It was understanding the general sinfulness of mankind and our need of a savior. No doubt all of us at some level have some of this going on. The need for, to, to be reminded of God's atonement of our life, the, the need for confession of sin in our life. But I wrote this down with respect to maybe some form of application or offering, that in respect to this particular offering, that we would return to a place of dependency and race away or run away from the lie of self-sufficiency. That I would quit thinking that I could do it on my own. I could quit thinking that my actions or my works were sufficient or enough. That I wouldn't fall into that same lie, that same trap that the Galatian church fell into. Get saved, go back to doing the works. In fact, where Paul says, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who tricked you? That you thought that this was the way in which we would approach God. 
For some of you, maybe the offering that God is calling you to this morning is this sin offering and racing away from the lie of self-sufficiency. Or maybe for some of us, we see the much more specific, much more pointed trespass offering. This was the offering that dealt with specific sins. Really, the, the New Testament understanding of forgiveness and repentance uh, certainly come into play here. In its simplest form, that we would turn from sin and towards a Savior. All of us repeatedly have that going on in our lives, but maybe in its purest sense, some of us for maybe the first time would look upon Christ's sacrifice in our place, turn from that sin, or sorry, turn from our sin and towards what Jesus has done for us. Recognizing that in and of ourselves, we can't make ourselves right with God. That we would seek his forgiveness through our repentance, through our turning of sin. So these five offerings, right, these five components, and I found it quite interesting in, in, in looking at these different things, that is, is Leviticus 1 through 5, 1 through 6 works through these. Really as believers, the inverse is true, is that we start at the bottom and work our way back up. Right, it starts with forgiveness and repentance. Um, you're never going to get to surrender without moving through these other things. It starts with us simply understanding who we are before God, repenting of our sin, uh, understanding the, the concept of atonement and the fullness of, of sin's effect within us, then moving us to the place where, man, I want to be right with God and right with others. And so there's fellowship and communion, and I seek to, to, to have that play out in my life regularly. And then I move to the place where I begin to offer myself as a sacrifice. Not perfectly, not completely, but I begin to do that and I recognize my failure and I want to do it more and more and more and then ultimately, I'm completely surrendered and yielded to the Lord. So a little card that you had at the beginning of the service, I want you to get that out. And here's what I want you to do because in a moment what we're going to do is we're going to bring an offering and uh, symbolically, we'll bring it to the altar and lay it before our Lord. But as you consider these different types of offerings and you consider the implications of these, what I want you to do is I want you to just begin to write on your card. Here's my offering. It might be a single word. You might need to write a paragraph. You might need to write on both sides of the card. If you don't have pens, you need a pen. We got some guys who have some pens. If you don't have a pen, put your hand up real quick. Let these guys get you a pen. Just keep it up till someone hands you a pen. And what we're going to do is we're going to corporately and collectively bring an offering and we're going to lay it before the Lord. Now I thought about just doing this at the end of the passage, but here's what I think is probably more appropriate. I'm going to let you trust me that the rest of Psalm 96 has some great things in there and that by the Spirit of God, you can draw out what God wants us to have within that. I want to press in on this and really let this be where we finish this morning. Because what, what is both, um, I think, ironic, not really ironic, God had this planned uh, from, from the very beginning, but is quite profound, is each and every one of us is going to write something on that card and then what we're going to do is we're going to come and we're going to bring it up. And in the process, we're going to move to the communion table. And here's what I want you to understand. Every single thing that we put on, our, on a card is going to reveal the fact that you and I are completely insufficient. That we're incapable. 
That at some level, I have to be made right with God because of some failure in my life, some sin in my life. And so as we write these things down, understanding that, but then in such a beautiful way, we come to the communion table being reminded of the fact that in our insufficiency, in our failure, in our brokenness, that Christ is sufficient that he heals us and makes us whole, that he makes us full and he makes us right, that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. In fact, at the end of Psalm 96, it talks about how God is gonna judge the world in righteousness and it says this, and the peoples in his faithfulness. I was thinking about that and the reality of that they're gonna rejoice. The psalmist is rejoicing in God's judgment Because God does not allow sin to go undealt with. But in equal measure, you and I are not under the wrath and the penalty of that sin because of what Christ has done. And that's what we remember when we come to the communion table. So here's what I want you to do. Well, you don't have any tables in the back this Sunday, and that's on purpose. And so here's what we're going to do in a minute. I'm going to release you. At Faith Church, we practice what's called an open communion, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to participate in communion with us. That's the only uh, prohibition that Scripture gives, and so that's the only prohibition that we want to give. So as that happens, when you choose to come forward, three tables up front, there's um, a gluten-free option in the gold plate here in the middle. As you come forward, let's first bring our offerings and lay them on the stairs. And, and hopefully by the end of um, communion, we'll have kind of this this picture that of all these things that we've laid before the Lord there. Okay, God, I'm offering this to you. Then let's grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll partake together. So let's come. Let's bring our offerings, broken, insufficient, inadequate as they are, and then move to the table of the one who is truly sufficient.